We're going to go ahead and start, but I want to begin by just uh, introducing the topic. Yesterday we spoke about empowerment through right identity. And although it's uh, on appearance, it seems like it's something so horrible and negative, it's actually the key that unlocks uh, the door to um, receiving the mercy and the grace of Christ. And we focused more on, I would say, revival. How to be revived. We first need to see who we are and what we are. Now we're going to talk a little about, about empowerment through right direction. And that emphasis is going to be more on reformation, a change and alteration of our thoughts, our previous thoughts, and our habits, our ideas, our ways of thinking, our worldviews, our presuppositions, the lens through which we interpret all of reality. I'm going to speak a little bit about right direction. And I, and I really like this quote from C.S. Lewis, just to start, set the, the tone here. He says, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Are you headed to that direction? in that direction. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much uh, for being with us, for guiding us and leading us. Uh, we pray that you would speak uh, through me, also speak to our hearts and our minds. And uh, we just want to pray for an extra portion of your Holy Spirit on the Sabbath. And we thank you so much for bringing us here. Be with those who are still on their way. And uh, we ask all this in your name. Amen. I've termed this the American facade. Uh, it's a spin-off of the American dream. And I'm going to pick a, uh, on America, the United States of America, just a little bit. And I can do that today. Not only, well, for one reason, because I am an American, and when you are an American, you, you have license to pick on your own country. But the second reason is because I'm in Canada. <laughs> and so, even though this is going to go on Audioverse and elsewhere, I think they'll be alright with that. So, it's a spin-off of the American dream. And is that the dream of your life? Or is there another better, more ultimate dream? the end goal that we're to be living for. If you define facade, it's a superficial appearance or illusion or illusion uh, of something. Are we living for a facade? David Platt uh, says this, I am convinced that we as Christ followers in American churches Again, we're going to dog on America a lot today. <laughs> I am convinced that we as Christ followers in American churches have embraced values and ideas that are not only unbiblical, but that actually contradict the gospel. The gospel that we claim to believe. How many of you believe that just because our culture says it, does that mean it's right? Does that mean we should follow it? What is the American dream? What comes to mind? And this is a little, I guess, a little uh, quiz. 
What comes to mind when you hear the words the American dream? Because I'm assuming that's probably the Canadian dream, the European dream, the China dream, uh, and, and every dream of, of most people in the world. But when you think of the American dream, what comes to mind? You think of success, right? Bright lights, big city. You think of making, a lot, making lots of money so that you can have multiple, multiple homes, as you see here. You think of liberty, life and liberty, giving you the, 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 the freedom to do that. You think about enjoying life and the American dream, to living the American dream. You think of uh, presidents in the United States also offering uh, this, this dream and reclaiming the American dream. And many people think now, as you see in this sign over here, that the American dream is over. As many of you know, that uh, know our, the American economy is not doing too well. Canada is doing pretty well. You guys are doing something right. Uh, by the way, my brother works for a Canadian bank, and so he appreciates Canada very much. So what is the American dream? And I'm going to define it in a popular way through wikipedia.com. Um, the American dream is a national ethos of the United States in which freedom includes a promise of the possibility of prosperity and success. In the definition of the American dream by James Truslow Adams in 1931, life should, in other words, it's an entitlement, life should be better and richer and fuller for everybody with opportunity for each according to ability or achievement, regardless of social class or circumstances of birth. And that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? And that actually sounds really good. But we need to look at, uh, and not everything is, is bad. Some of these principles are actually not bad ones. But we need to go deeper uh, into some of the things that the American dream has become. To, to many citizens living throughout the world. The American dream is also synonymous with the seduction of, of success. How many of you want to be successful? I mean, everybody wants to be successful. It's not necessarily a bad thing. I want to be successful in preaching this sermon, <laughs> right? I don't want to bomb it. The last thing any speaker wants to do is get up front and completely bomb their sermon. And believe me, I've done that many, many a time. Many, many a time. The American dream is synonymous with the seduction of success. And in the world's eyes, you would think that Madonna, I mean, she was, she was successful when I was young, when I was a kid, and I'm close to 40 years of age. I mean, she's been around for a long time. And oftentimes, what drives success, see, uh, we need to distinguish between external idols, like success, to the hidden, more deeper idols. And you're going to see in this quote here that there are deeper motivations that often drive success or these external idols. Notice what she says here, Madonna. She says, I have an iron will. Wow, that's, that's powerful. I have an iron will. 
And all of my will, all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. My drive in life is from a horrible fear of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me, pushing me. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I'm somebody. Even Madonna. My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. It probably never will. This drive to become somebody, to be recognized. I, I want, let me show you something in scripture. Did you know that this is the same drive that, that drove, the same idol that drove the mindset of the Pharisees of old. If you go to Matthew chapter 6, and let's turn there really quickly here, you'll see something very fascinating. This desire to be known, to be seen, to be more than just mediocre. This desire to be a part of something big because it makes me big in my own eyes and in the eyes of other. It becomes an obsession, a possession. How many of you are naturally possessive? Don't raise your hands because people may be looking. And that's something that we naturally don't want to be associated with. But we are all instinctually possessive. You notice in, in Matthew chapter 6, we don't have a lot of time to, to delve into this, but notice the motives for why the Pharisees of old what drove them? What actuated them? And if you see in verse 1, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men. To be what? To be noticed or seen. If you go to verse 2, Why do they give to the poor and sound trumpets? Why? So that they may be, and my translation says, to be honored. If you go to verse uh, 5, don't be like the hypocrites. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues that they may be seen. Right? Verse 7, they were involved in meaningless repetition that they might be heard. Verse 16, when they were fasting, they had the appearance of, of gloomy faces so that they would be noticed. And Jesus offers a different principle in verse 3. Something radically different than what they were used to. He says, when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. A different motive, a different purpose, a different direction for why we do the things that we do. And who are we to hide it from? He says, don't let your left hand know what your right hand and what your right hand know what your left hand is doing. We are to hide our good deeds, not from the world, because Jesus says we are to be a light. We are to hide them from ourselves. From ourselves. Be blind to our own good deeds. More than... More than other idols, personal success and achievement lead to a sense that we ourselves are God. That our security and value, again, these are, this is more of, a, of the internal or hidden idols. 
Oftentimes we want to be successful, uh, but we do it because we want security. We want value. And that's something that only Jesus Christ, period, can satisfy. That our security and value rest in our own wisdom, strength, and performance. To be the very best at what you do, to be at the top of the heap, means that no one is like you. You are supreme. You are supreme. How about uh, when you think of the American dream, you also think of uh, this obsession we have with outward appearance as an aspect of the American dream. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that when you dress up and go to church, your first thought is, is not going to be, what's the, how, how ugly can I look to go and go out? That, I mean, no, you can go take these things to extreme, and that's not what I'm saying. But let me ask you this, just to uh, show a little bit this, this uh, obsession we have with um, uh, plastic surgery. In New York Times, in an article entitled, Ethnic Differences Emerge in Plastic Surgery, out of the nationalities, which race do you think, percentage-wise, do we have Asians in here? I think we do. But what, and I think I just gave it away. But out of the nationalities, which, which I guess, group of people, uh, percentage-wise, have, uh, and this is in the United States, uh, are most likely to get uh, some type of job done um, on their body? And, and by the way, this is, I'm not, if you've had it done, I'm not rebuking you at all. That, that's not my point here. But, but just read this. This is interesting. About 750,000 Asians in the United States underwent cosmetic procedures from surgery to less invasive work like Botox injections in 2009. Roughly 5% of the Asian population and more than double the number in 2000. According to projections by the American Society of, of Plastic Surgeons, among Latinos, the number was about 1.4 million, nearly 3% of that population, and a threefold increase from nine years earlier. In 2009, about 4% of whites had, co uh, had cosmetic work done. Very, very interesting. Another thing uh, that we kind of include and lump in there with the American dream, how many of you are single? No, don't, don't raise your hand. Don't raise your hand because there might be guys and looking. Uh, and uh, you know, you don't want to, that's not why you came here, right? <laughs> but we all want that trophy wife or husband. And a lot of times when that's your motivation and it's all about you, you it's a clear indication you're not ready for marriage yet. And it's very interesting, Timothy Keller um, says this, if you get married, and, and if all your hopes and all your desires, and I know uh, marriage is a great thing, isn't it? I've been married for uh, almost four years, and it is, it's awesome. Marriage is awesome. But when we make that our God, when we make that the center, as though that's going to solve everything, you're misdirected in your life. If you get married, and, and he shares why, if you get married, putting the weight of all your deepest hopes and longings 
on the person you are marrying, you are going to crush him or her with your expectations. It will distort your life and your spouse's life in a hundred ways. No person, not even the best one, can give your soul all it needs. And again, Jesus is the only one that can give you all your needs. You're going to think you have gone to bed with Rachel, and this is in the context of, of course, Jacob. You're going to think that you've gone to bed with Rachel, and you will get up, and it will always be Leah. It will always be Leah, that's right. And so, if we have this facade, this, these types of unrealistic expectations, that that is, that is the, the, the key to solving the problems in your life, you're sadly mistaken. And I know there's a lot of singles in this room. I sleep with uh, in the same room as, as one of them. Good man. He's a very good man. A very good man. We, yeah, the, one of the reasons why we, we uh, have, are having difficult time waking up is because we love to talk. And um, so anyway. The American dream isn't necessarily a bad thing. And, and what, how, how do we determine when, when it shifts into something that, that is, is negative um, or detrimental to our spiritual life? And we're going to talk about that a little bit. Um, the human heart takes good things, good things, like a successful career, love, material possessions, even family, and turns them into ultimate things. What, what's your ultimate thing? Our hearts deify, make into gods, uh, our hearts deify them as the center of our lives because we think they can give us significance and security, safety, and fulfillment if we attain them. What is your center? So when you look at the American dream uh, in terms of, uh, in a superficial way, you can see that oftentimes it leads to misdirected goals in life, a misdirected philosophy of life, misdirected means of uh, obtaining those things. And we're going to talk a, a little bit more uh, about that. The American dream. David Platt again, he says, we have in many areas blindly and unknowingly embraced values and ideas that are common in our culture but are antithetical or against or contrary or contradictory to the gospel that he taught. Here we stand amid an American dream dominated, dominated by self-advancement, self-esteem, self-sufficiency. Any of you guys want to marry her? Self-sufficiency. You have to be a real man to marry someone like her. Self-sufficiency, individualism, materialism. I couldn't find a picture for universalism. But these are the things that dominate, the principles that dominate the American dream in excessive uh, attention to self, ourselves. 
The gospel and the American dream, he goes on to say, are clearly and ultimately antithetical to each other. While the goal of the American dream is to make much of us, the goal of the gospel is to make much of God. To make much of God. The danger in living for the American dream, how many of you have played Monopoly before? What profit is it if you gain the whole world, Jesus says, but lose eternal life? But lose eternal life. There's a story of a, a stewardess who was on a cruise, something similar to this, uh, one here, and you know, some, it's, like a, it's like a Titanic story is about to sink, and, and I'm just going to really quickly go through it. Um, it was about to sink, and of course she was, the stewardess in particular, was in charge of getting, uh, rounding everyone up and getting them out before the, the ship sank. And so as she was going room, room to room to room to room, checking on, uh, the, uh, on, on if people were still in the rooms, she noticed that everyone had left their jewelry, their belongings, their cash, their gold coins, etc., etc., in the rooms. And so she got this bright idea and said, you know what, I'm just gonna, it's gonna, all going to go down anyway. Might as well grab as much as I can. So she starts stuffing her aprons, her apron. And um, she probably wished she had aprons. But she starts stuffing her apron. And as she went up, uh, the story goes that she was about to get onto this life uh, boat or raft. And, and so as she did so, the, the, the heavy weight uh, of all this uh, jewelry and, and so forth kind of unbalanced her. And so she slipped and plunged into the water. And she plunged to her death. Because the weight of all those possessions, the things that she thought were going to give her a better life, actually ended her life. Because typically she would have been able to swim. And that's much like the world. It's a facade. It's an illusion of something better. When in reality, when we become possessive of those things and make it the center it can be the very worst things uh, for us. So what are your priorities? What direction are you headed for? And, and sometimes we don't realize what they are until God takes it away. Until God takes it away. Like Abraham and Isaac, sacrifice your only son. And he this was, I mean, his son was what it was all about. Was, that's what the promises were about. And yet God was asking him to give up his possession and to make him first. So sometimes we realize what is number one in our lives once God takes it away. If you uh, remember the financial disaster in the, in the States, and we're still in it, uh, speaking of uh, the, the crisis in mid-2008, uh, Timothy Keller makes this observation. After the global economic crisis began in mid-2008, the acting chief financial officer of Freddie Mac hanged himself in his basement. The chief executive of Sheldon Good, a leading U.S. real estate auction firm, shot himself in the head behind the wheel of his red Jaguar. It's obvious what was number one 
in their lives. A French money manager who invested the wealth of many of Europe's royal and leading families and who had lost 1.4 billion of his clients money in Bernard uh, Madoff's Ponzi scheme slit his wrists and died in his Madison Avenue office. A Danish senior executive with HSBC Bank hanged himself in the wardrobe of his suite in Knightsbridge, London. When a Bear Stearns executive learned that he would not be hired by J.P. Morgan Chase, he took a drug overdose and leaped from the 29th floor of his office building. It was, a grimly, it was grimly reminiscent of the suicides in the wake of the 1929 stock market crash. What's number one? in your life. I know when I was in high school or academy, just maybe like 14 or 15 years old, what was number one in, in my life at that, that time was a girl. And when she broke up with me, I felt like I had nothing to live for anymore, right? Have you ever gone through something like that? You had no purpose in life, might as well just end it now. And sometimes we don't realize how big something is in our lives, in our life, until God takes it away. Nancy Piercy, she's a worldview, uh, uh, I, I guess she's an apologist, she's, uh, but her specialty is worldview um, uh, scholarship. And she, she says this, the way God brings us to see what we are really basing our life upon is to take it away. When we lose our health or family or work or reputation and our lives come crashing down and we feel lost and empty, that's when we realize how much our sense of purpose and identity was actually bound up in those things. That's why we have to be willing to let him take them away. We have to be willing to die. To die. What's your direction and purpose in life? The Roman philosopher Seneca said this, if you don't know which port you're sailing towards, no wind is the right one. You could say every wind is the right one. Even if it drops you off the face of the earth and you die. Nancy Piercy again, the principle of dying to worldly systems applies beyond the obvious sins like lust and, and adultery and murder and, and, and cheating and stealing and extortion. The principle of dying to worldly systems applies beyond obvious sins, she says. In a culture that measures everything, everything in terms of size, success, and influence. We have to say no to these worldly values as well. In a culture of material affluence, we have to say no to coveting a better house, a sleeker car, a more upscale neighborhood, a more impressive ministry. In a culture that judges people by reputation and achievements, we have to resist the lure of living for professional recognition and advancement. You know, so often we, we, we do gauge everything in terms of success and the numbers. 
And we need to make sure that that is not our driving uh, goal in life, but that our first goal is, Lord, I will do it your way. Success is in your hands. And whether we shrink or whether we grow, it is in your hands. But we will live by a thus saith the Lord. Not that these things are wrong in themselves, she goes on to say. And they're not. But when they fill our hearts and define our motivations, then they become barriers to our relationship with God. Which means they become sin for us. As Paul says, anything not of faith is sin because it blocks our single-minded devotion to God and hinders our growth in holiness. So what's the essence of true Christianity then? What's the essence? What, what should drive us? What should motivate us? What direction should we head towards? You get an idea or a glimpse in Jesus' response to those who sought to follow him. Now, for someone showing interest in following Jesus, what would you tell that person in order to successfully bring him to Christ? Do we have uh, any in here that have been involved in evangelism? I mean, typically, you do, you, you're, you're, the first thought in your head is, is to say something that won't turn them away, right? You're going to try to remove as many roadblocks as possible. But it's very interesting what we see in, in Jesus' life. In Luke chapter 9, verse 57, a man comes to Jesus and he says, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus' interesting words. He says, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Is that how you would respond? If someone came to you and said they want to follow Jesus? Foxes have holes. <laughs> and birds of the air have nests. But I, or Jesus, has no place to lay his head. Kind of interesting. Very interesting. Was Jesus about numbers? This is not a response that you would say to someone if you were interested in numbers. Jesus was about the real thing. The real thing. Someone else comes to Jesus, or Jesus says to someone, follow me. But he says, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. Most of us will say, you know what? Family is very important, right? And it is, it is. And that's, we're not saying that it's not, but it's very, just very interesting what Jesus says. Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Luke 9, 60. And then someone else comes to Jesus in Luke 9.59. I will follow you, Lord. But first, and that's the key word there. First. What's first in your life? What's first in my life? But first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. And of course, Jesus responds, No one who puts his hands to the plow and looks back or looking back is fit for the service in the kingdom of God.
So how does Jesus respond if we were to put it in today's terms? Become homeless because that's my life, brother or buddy. And by the way, sometimes that's where ministry takes you, right? It's not always about, and, and that's not saying that, that if you are blessed with wealth, that, that you need to become homeless. The principle is, is God first in your life. But become homeless was his response. Or let someone else bury your dad. Hey, don't even say goodbye to your family. Wow. Wow. And, and this is the principle. What we need to get from this is that ultimately God should be the first, the, the, the first priority, the center of our life. If you look in Luke 14, 25, just to show you again that God did not, Jesus did not measure things by how big, how successful he was going to be. Uh, the Bible says that there, were a large, there was a large crowd that was following him or going along with him. And he turns around and says these strange words. That looks like a nice family there. If anyone comes to me and does not hate, and again, what we need to understand is, is, is what Jesus is saying here is does not put or prefer or put um, God number one above even family. But he's not saying that we are to hate our father and our mothers and our wives and children. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. He goes on to say in Luke 14, 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Luke 14, 27, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So then, he sums it up in Luke 14, 33, so that none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. And then he says a little, I guess, parable, if you will, in Luke 14, 28, and also we're going to look at 31. Which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost? And that's ultimately what Jesus was doing, is he was putting forth this apparent impediment to these people who wanted to follow him, but he wanted them to follow him for the right reasons, to purify their motives, to take out the self in ministry, to calculate the cost, and to see if they had enough to complete it. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and calculate or consider whether he is strong enough. James Trussell Adams, uh, who coined the phrase the American dream in 1931 says this, a dream, the American dream is a dream in which each man and each woman shall be able to attain to the fullest stature of which they are, and this is the key word, innately capable and be recognized by others for what they are. What they are. The dangerous assumption 
we unknowingly accept in the American dream, and this is uh, David Platt again, says this, a dangerous assumption we unknowingly accept in the American dream is that our greatest asset is our own ability. The American dream prizes what people can accomplish when they believe in themselves and trust in themselves. And we are drawn towards such thinking. But the gospel has different priorities. The gospel beckons us to die to ourselves and to believe in God and to trust in His power. God confronts us with our utter inability to accomplish anything of value apart from Him. Even more important is the subtly fatal goal we will achieve when we pursue the American dream. As long as we achieve our desires in our own power, we will always attribute it to our own glory. To be recognized, we, we looked at that in Matthew 6, to be recognized by others for what we, what I am. This, after all, is the goal of the American dream, to make much of ourselves. It's antithetical to the three angels' message, which states that we are to give glory to who? To give glory to God. I'm going to skip this illustration and, and, and close with this question and, and uh, uh, one last scripture verse. So what do you treasure? And Jesus shared this parable of a kingdom, uh, uh, the kingdom of heaven being like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and he sells all that he has and buys that field. Think of it like this. You have this peasant farmer working in a plot of land that he's renting, if you will. And as he's working and, tr and, and plodding along, he hears a thud. And, and so he wonders what it is, and so of course he's trying to dig it out uh, for, for his intents and purposes. And he finds out that, that there's a chest down there. So you see, back then they did not have banks. And so a lot of times when soldiers were going out to war, etc., they would bury their treasure. That was their bank. But as many soldiers do when they go out to battle, they die. Right? And so that treasure was forgotten. And so oftentimes people would find this treasure. And of course he opens it up and he finds countless millions, the equivalent of millions. And the Bible says, when a man found it, and he hides it again, because that property did not belong to him. So you can imagine, he closes his chest, and he's just, he's just ecstatic. He runs home, he bursts through the doors, and he says, honey, we got to sell everything. And so he's selling the, the rice cooker and... And uh, he wants to sell this, the, the house, and, and, and she has, she does not, she can't comprehend, she does not understand. But he has found something value, so valuable, that he's willing to sacrifice everything that he might obtain that treasure. 
And even though she doesn't understand, he goes and he sells everything, all that he has, and he buys that field. How many of you this morning want to exchange the pleasures of this world, the purposes of this life, for the countless, uh, un immeasurable uh, treasure that only Jesus Christ can provide, that only He can fill uh, the, the, the longings and the, the emptiness of your life. And I just want to leave you with that, that we can choose God and forsake these other things. Let's bow our heads for a closing word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for giving us your dear Son to show us something better, something better to live for, as something that will satisfy us from the emptiness that we find in this world. Lord, be with us today on the Sabbath. Guide us and bless us. We ask all this in your name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.